0: Good evening and welcome. Um, you're, you're the lucky ones, to judge from the crowd outside, this is currently the hottest ticket in London. And uh, it's, it's a shame that we didn't book a bigger room, but uh, uh, it's, 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 good to, it's good to have so many people and uh, confirmation of how important is our topic tonight that so many people try to get in. Um, I'm Piers Ludlow, I'm, uh, I'm the head of the Cold War Studies programme here. Um, so I'm sort of chairing events, but you don't want to hear me. Uh, you want to hear our very distinguished speakers. Before I introduce them, though, there are two or three sort of uh, basic points I need to uh, make. Um, the first, and I must confess I still am too old to understand what this means, but the Twitter hashtag for the event is hashtag LSE Poland 1989. We like to be appropriate. Um, <laughs> The second, more, more important, and I think more comprehensible point is that this, is, uh, this event is a collaboration between NSC Ideas, and particularly the Cold War Studies Programme, and the Polish uh, Embassy in London. Um, and I believe the Ambassador is with us tonight, so it's great Thank to you. see you.
1: Sorry.
0: Um, We also have marked this event, um, we, those of us involved in the running of the journal Cold War History, by putting together a virtual special issue on the end of the Cold War. Um, and you can uh, find, um, you, can f- you can find get hold of this issue by going to following the URL on some cards that have apparently been given to you. Have you been given cards with a URL on them? Oh, well, okay. Uh, if not, I'm sure Google will find it for you. Um, we're also apparently distributing some surveys. So if you've received a survey, could you please uh, fill it out and then drop it in the box on the way out? Great. Um, I think that's the boring bits done. Let me get on to the much more interesting task of introducing our four very distinguished speakers. Um, and I'm going to introduce them in the order that they're going to speak. Um, and the idea is that more or less they speak each for 10 minutes and then we'll turn it over into a roundtable, uh, into a discussion with all of you, hopefully. Um First speaker will be uh, Eugeniusz Smolar, who is a Polish journalist, who is telling me about uh, long ago having had plans to do a doctorate uh, here at the LSE, but it didn't quite happen. But instead, uh, he ended up uh, as a journalist working amongst other places for uh, the uh, Polish section of the BBC, so opposite, across the road of Bush House. And he was also president of the Centre for International Relations in Warsaw from 2004 to 2009. Speaking second, so not in the order they're seated in, is my colleague Vlad Zubok, who's a professor in the International History Department at the LSE um, and a leading expert on the Soviet Union. Um, Then going third um, is Nigel Thorpe. Um, a former British diplomat and ambassador who was in Warsaw until December 1988, I I understand it. So very much uh, in the period we're talking about today, although leaving before things sort of came to a head. And then finally, but definitely not least, um, to my right, uh, the final speaker will be Anne Applebaum, uh, Senior Fellow of LSE Ideas uh, and Director of Political Studies at the Legatum Institute. As many of you will know, she was here last year, was it, as the Philippe Ramon uh, Chair in History and International Affairs, uh, but as she's also was in uh, Warsaw in 1989 as a correspondent for The Economist, and she has written extensively on East on the Eastern Bloc. So we have an extremely distinguished panel. I'm fascinated to hear what they're going to say, uh, and I'll shut up and pass straight over to them. So. <laughs>
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador, for paying for the trip. Uh, Allowed me to see my daughter and family here in London. eh? and To appear in such a distinguished audience. Most of them are Poles, actually, so it makes me a bit, you know, delicate, because whatever you say will be considered rather um, uh, controversial. Anyhow, uh, because we have a representative of the diplomacy here on the panel, and we are looking at... uh, uh, at, at the events, uh, Polish events, uh, from a broader perspective, there are two major lessons which need to be drawn from those events. First of all, do not trade with other people's freedom. That means it, it is a, the realists always claim that you have to adapt, you have to compromise, like now, for example, with Putin over Crimea, because, because, you know, power, politics, etc. At the end of the day, it doesn't pay off. And also, there there is another lesson, which is very important, and it is a Polish lesson, is that we actually don't know how strong or how weak are the authoritarian regimes until the moment comes, the moment of crisis. And this is a very important lesson. That means the realists are not really realists. And those idealists in prison, solidarity, or core people, or democratic opposition, they they were the real realists in this big game. So, um, observation is that we've been living in the, in the, in the age of incredible uh, miracles. Considering the state of the world in 1989, if somebody would tell us that within six months we would have such a big bang, such a dramatic democratic change in Poland, and within two years there will be no Soviet Union, well, we would send such a person to shrink. You know, that's, that's obvious. And it happened. So the, 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 we, we don't have a time now, within the limits of two hours awarded to me, uh, to, uh, to, to discuss, to, de- to be- debate this idea. But the fact is that the polls, and many of them here will feel gratified, polls were unique in the communist uh, in the communist system because the Poles actually have rebelled since 1945 every 10 or so years. I don't have to, you know, to to remind them 1956, 1968, 1964, the intellectuals, 1968, 1970 on the coast, 1976, 1980. This is a series of events which have pr- eventually produced an alternative elite. And this is very important because that makes Poland also different from other post-communist countries. We did have an elite it was the Catholic intellectuals, it was the people on the left, on the right, political parties, KPN, those of you who know what I'm talking about, you know. That's, we were ready, but it didn't come cheaply. And there was a saying at the time, they took the Poles 10 years, the East Germans 10 months, Hungarian 10 weeks, and the Czechoslovaks 10 days to produce a regime change. And it happened. Now, many people now... Question: the way how Poland has progressed since 1989. Let's talk about the economy first. This is a story of incredible success. We did not look for any mythical third way because there were people who were arguing there is a capitalism, free market, there is a socialism and we must find a way. You know, No, we, there was a blueprint and it was successful. It was a free market economy and Balcerowicz who is a symbol, he was not alone. But we just went that way. And it was Painful. It was like myself who quipped once. As we've been repeating over and over again that we all know how to make a soup fish out of a fish, but we don't know how to make a fish out of a soup fish. And the or the aquarium, there are different versions, and this is very true. The economy was in shambles. It was all regulated, so-called planned. That means the left shoe was produced in one city, the right shoe. I'm joking, but that was the kind of a planning. It was. And there was a, the, uh, the, the inflation was close to 1,000%, and it had to be stopped. And the only way to stop it was to stop it. And this is what happened. And it took a few weeks, very nervous weeks, described by Balcerović and others who worked for him, when they were actually going and looking for the, whether the prices of egg will start to change. And the prices of vodka, by the way. There are two measures in Poland at that time. And so, uh, and the truth is that it started to work. Other countries took a more subtle, more um, evolutionary uh, way of development, and it took Poland much, Poland much quicker, regain the level of production of 1988, when other countries had to wait seven, eight, ten years. Ukraine until today did not reach the level of production of 1988. So it's from from the point of view of the statistics. That's a great success. But of course, many people will say, OK, but what about the individuals? The individuals matter. The people who paid the highest price of this transformation were the workers, the industrial workers, the solidarity workers, those who fought and suffered. But the fact of the matter is that they had been working in the industry, which was ancient, ancient technologically underdeveloped, and there was no way that the Polish state at that time could support them financially. So there was a mass unemployment, massive privatization took place, which was considered by many people as stealing money from the people because it was all belonged to the state, that, that everything belonged to, to, to all Poles, theoretically speaking. So they had to share somehow. You know, how can you share? Zero. Mass- state subsidies were cut over, you know, over a period of one month. Um, and it took some time, but the new foreign investment started to pour. Some people in Poland fund the money somewhere. You know, there was a joke on the communism that Poles are very strange people. They earn one thousand, spend two thousand, and save three. So you know, there was a there was a, there was a there was a money around. There were those first small companies. You know, those who been living in Poland at the time remember. <coughs> so that's about the economy. The, the development uh, took off. Uh, quite rapidly, there was no major Polish capital, so of course it had to come from the West. And it, let's, be, let's be fair, it meant taking over the whole industries, not just a factory. Because sometimes a major factory or two factories, that was in all industry Poland had at that time. Now, the other thing is, uh, of course, our position, as we saw ourselves at that time, I mean, Poles Paul, never believed in the end of history. And so, you know, when 1989 came, people looked into the, into the eyes of each other and said, boys and girls, let's run west. There's no choice. What, what is this? Russia, Soviet Union, it's weak. We have no choice. We became members of NATO. It didn't come easily. In Washington at that time, there were many people, and not, not to mention Berlin, London, or Paris, many people who didn't believe in it. They said, we shouldn't antagonize weak Russia. We should bring Russia on board. They should become institutionally somehow members of the, of the Western structures. But, you know, it uh, didn't happen. For very obvious reasons, Russia, Russia's leaders, have had their own plans. So um, it is a blessing... From when you look back from the point of view of what happened in Ukraine, uh, that we are part of the Western Alliance. President Obama was there, was in Warsaw yesterday. Anna Obama was participating in the dinner. I might say a few words. It was a wonderful speech. Read it on the internet. The best speech president, the American president made on Poland ever. Maybe with the exception of President Wilson uh, and 14 points. Um, now, we became members of the European Union. Was it uh, a done deal? Not necessarily. Would not the John Paul II intervene with his famous phrase from the uni, od Uni Unii Europejskiej, from the Lublin Union to... The, I'm not sure that all bishops would actually support the referendum. But it happened. We had the majority and Poland became a member. And it served, it served Poland very well indeed. And I'm not talking about only about subsidies which are important but subsidies con- constitute only 5-7% to 7% of the GDP growth the rest is Polish money and other f- uh, foreign investments and actually the much uh, wealthier Polish state so it, it was the, the will which created an economic activity in which Poland now is one of the most popular places when the foreign investment in Europe goes and that's, that's that great so, as I am being told that I've got only two, uh, two minutes, there is another thing that Poland, Radosa Sikorski has quipped, and this is a great story. Under communists, we've been treated as Eastern, as Eastern Europe. As a members of the European Union, we became Central Europe and as a result of the crisis and Poland fared pretty well during the crisis we became Northern Europe and thanks God for the first time in history without changing any
3: borders (laughs) so
2: so this shows how position of Poland also in foreign politics have changed and I I personally have been witnessing several occasions when uh, people or other diplomacies raise an issue in some capital from our region and been told did you talk to the Poles and it is an interesting phenomenon that on the uh, Chancellor call, it was Germany which was considered a defender of smaller nations within the European Union. Not anymore. Germany, because of the crisis, now plays a special role. And many smaller countries, smaller members, actually are coming to Warsaw to seek our advice and to seek our support. So Poland, which is six biggest economies, six biggest country in the European Union, starts playing a role which is really important in national politics. I've mentioned when I started and I end here that uh, we've been living through a period of true miracles. And it reminds me of a story when very young Adam Michnik, in 1973 or 4, when he left jail visited an old Polish poet, Antoni Swonimski, and he complained that the situation is very bad, that people left prison, we don't know what to do. And Swonimski told him, you know, Adam, Poland can develop in two manners. One manner is a very Western manner. When you plan something, put into action, evaluate the result, adapt, change, put into action some more, etc., it will never work in Poland. In Poland, the only realistic way is to have a miracle. Thank you. <laughs>
3: Okay, lad. Okay, we are here in a race, a little bit of a race against time. Ten minutes. Uh, first of all, I'm honored to be invited here for a person who was born in Moscow to speak about this momentous event in the life of Polish nation. Nobody's been Really, is <laughs> I know. Um, just to start with two personal episodes, I had a friend, I still have a friend, Polish historian, Eugenius Duraczynski, and we had two conversations, one in December 1988 uh, another in December 1989. Both uh, conversations I remember very well. First time he came to my apartment in Moscow, and he was very concerned that uh, if changes begin in Poland, uh, Soviets would send troops. And I said to him, uh, I remember very clearly with absolute certainty, Eugeniusz, we will not send troops. I said we, um, because I felt I was... Soviet at that time. In December 1989, uh, he, um, we celebrated the, uh, uh, the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. And uh, suddenly, I raised a toast. Next year, we will not see the red flag over the Kremlin. He was stunned. Uh, he didn't know how to react to this. Well, it, we waited for two years. Instead of one. Why I'm saying that? Because, uh, of course, uh, the events in Poland and in Eastern Europe electrified us in Russia, but even more, we changed uh, under the impact of our own revolutionary events in uh, Russia itself, in the Soviet Union at the time. I'm a historian, so I trust not only my memories, I trust documents that I find in the archives. And what uh, I've been finding in archives tells me uh, at least uh, three interesting things that I didn't know at the time. Uh, First... Eastern Europe in 1988 and 89 was not in the focus of Soviet attention at all. Um, the Soviets were focused on their new project, Perestroika, and particularly on Gorbachev's project, the Common European Home. They wanted to rehaul the whole architecture of European security, and they wanted a reformed Soviet Union to be a part of a larger. Europe. Also, as a minor note, uh, Gorbachev and uh, a reformist entourage around him, people like Alexander Yakolev, Eduard Shevardnadze, they had a very strong complex of the Prague Spring uh, crushed in 1968. So all of them, about two dozens of people, but they kept, kept very key positions in the leadership at the time, were adamant to stress that this should not happen again, and this concern. This concern led uh, let, uh, let, let them to uh, the second point I want to make, which uh, was corroborated by the archival um, uh, knowledge. They wanted to withdraw Soviet troops, at least from uh, from spring uh, uh, 1987. I have several quotes. I don't have time to use this quotes. Um, Shevardnadze, Yakovlev, um, Gorbachev didn't say it. Uh, they raised the question what would happen to Eastern Europe if we withdraw Soviet troops or really wanted to withdraw Soviet troops. But for, for, reason, for obvious reasons, uh, instability in Eastern Europe and also possible instability in the Soviet Union itself, they didn't know how to do it. They procrastinated because they seriously didn't know how to withdraw all these troops' communications, all these generals' uh, uh, offices, and so on and so forth. There was no infrastructure for those people in the Soviet Union itself. But what's important, and the archives tell us, they wanted to withdraw those troops. And finally, the third point, which has been uh, well known, but again, we find ample, ample corroboration of this point. By 1988, and certainly 1989, the Soviet leadership treated Eastern Europe uh, as an economic albatross. In terms of economy... uh, uh, not only the Soviet Union was an economic crisis, Eastern Europe was an economic crisis. On May 24th, just 10 days before the Polish um, elections, in 1989, that is, uh, Shevardnadze summed it up in his conversation in the Foreign Ministry. So he said, all that we're seeing in Poland and Hungary is because of an economic collapse. Economy drives politics. And we are at fault. We drag them into this. So we are responsible for this economic mess. So uh, Gorbachev put it even more nicely. Uh, Eastern Europeans grew tired of us. We grew tired of them. Let's live separately. (laughs) But in Europe, in the same Europe. So my image of what happened in 1989, I fully understand why Polish uh, colleagues and friends uh, depict it in the way that they do. My image is um, not Poland as being a grave digger, a crucial grave digger of uh, the Soviet bloc and communism in Eastern Europe. In a sense, it was. But my image is different. It's Poland not disrupting the work that Gorbachev and his reformers were doing, digging the grave for themselves. Digging the grave for the Soviet Union very busily and part of a Western, particularly American, foreign policy in 1989 can be explained as telling the poles: be careful, they're doing whatever we want already. In other words, they're changing themselves. We don't believe they may not succeed, but they're doing it themselves. And this is what we felt living in the Soviet Union at the time of are certainly two parallel processes are influencing each other. And, of course, as the polemic in Financial Times recently reminded us, a Polish semi-free elections in June 1989 were not the first semi-free elections inside the bloc. The Soviet semi-free elections took place in in March 1989. So it's very, very important to remember. Uh, We also have an evidence about Gorbachev encouraging Jaruzelski, whom he respected and trusted, uh, probably the only person that Gorbachev really knew well in Poland. Uh, Gorbachev encouraged him to proceed with the roundtable in in Poland. Um, Even Soviet reformers, even sort of people whom we call free-minded, liberal-minded, people like Yakov, they didn't know very well the setup in Poland. They didn't know the alternative Polish elite that Eugeniusz just said about. Um, They were scared of Valencia for good reason, but they also were scared even of some reform communists like Michislav Rakowski, Until it was too late. Until Rakovsky was, you know, by far an outdated figure, and events proceeded too uh, too fast. Now, fast forward to the surprise of uh, June Fourth, nineteen eighty nine, elections. It was a surprise. It was uh, a, a surprise, but not a shock for the Soviet leadership that the Solidarity had a landslide. Um, I found the notes of Shevardnadze talking to Honecker two days after that, as June 6, 1989. They talk about anything, but above all, they talk about the Soviet Congress of People's Deputies in Moscow and how the Soviets are excited to reform their country and to reform socialism. And then at the end of the conversation, I couldn't believe reading this record, not finding Poland in this record, then... One of the two uh, uh, conversationalists raised the subject. Guess who? Erich Honecker. I said, by the way, our Polish friends suffered a huge defeat. We must do something about it. Shebarnad's response is not recorded, but it's just a moment, basically. Let's go, let's go. What was the priorities of the Soviet Union at the time? In June 1989, Gorbachev sends uh, his foreign policy uh, aide, Vadim Zagladin, to Brussels. And Vadim Zagladin carries very unequivocal message whatever polls do is their decision. We will live. It's almost like Putin, but it's not quite like Putin.
0: You know, they, said, you know,
3: they said it in quite earnestness. You know, we'll live with any Polish government, which was a shocking statement, of course, considering the previous reluctance of the Politburo to admit even the possibility of some reform communists in Poland. That was a complete change. But why this change? You have to look at the context. It was the peak of Gorbachev's diplomacy of the common European home. Zagladin went to Brussels to prepare negotiations for ra- for the Soviet Union to be part of that reformation of the entire of the entire European Space. So, uh, another point on the danger of use of force. Was was I uh, was I a fool to tell uh, to tell my friend in December 1988 that we would never invade? No, it turned out that the archival evidence proved I was not a fool. I just guessed it right. I didn't know at the time. In fact, you know, if you, uh, you know, I started with a statement that the Soviet Soviet reform was already 1987 were afraid of the situation of keeping so many troops in Eastern Europe, and particularly in East Germany. But they didn't know what to do with those troops, how to withdraw those troops. Uh, At no point uh, before or after Tiananmen, they uh, imagined a possibility of using troops. But they were afraid of a Tiananmen in Eastern Europe that could happen by chance. Accidentally, and that fear drove their policies uh, first in Poland, then in Hungary, then in the GDR before and after the collapse of the wall. To conclude, to conclude, of course, it was not easy for the Soviet Union to let. Poland go and to let Eastern Europe go. But as you may have concluded from my brief presentation, they were more ready than we had known even uh, a decade ago. The archival evidence uh, shows that they were prepared to uh, let Eastern Europe go. They just were concerned how this would affect their own project of perestroika back home because of many guys... And now Putin reminded us of this. There are many guys in the Soviet Union and now in Russia that looked at history very differently. So uh, Gorbachev had to look at the public opinion, and even Kohl admitted it in his conversation with Bush somewhere around uh, early uh, June 1990, uh, Bush said, uh, Cole said to Bush, it's not like Stalin times. Gorbachev has to look at the public opinion at home, and some of this public opinion is very hard-line and very nationalistic. So, to conclude, uh, at this very summit, um, um, At a different summit, I have to rephrase it, at a different summit uh, with Bush uh, in 1990, Gorbachev said to him, "Um, listen, we understand Germany is getting unified, Eastern Europe is making a choice of alliances, but what we don't really want, we don't want the Soviet Union to be excluded, to be excluded for Europe. If it happens, you'll get a strong reaction. And unfortunately, we see that Gorbachev's vision and strategy fail. Poland is free, prosperous, integrated into Europe and NATO. Yet the shadow of Gorbachev's warning to Bush lives with us today. Thank you.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Thank you for um, having me here. Um, I first went to Poland in... 1970. Uh, It was a long, hard road from the grey, grim, depressed, repressed country that I saw then to what we see today, a thriving liberal, free market democracy. Fantastic journey. As a British diplomat, I was lucky enough to take part in that journey, and I'm going to talk about it a bit tonight. The embassy I joined in 1970 was part of a small, rather isolated Western community in Warsaw. We had little contact with Poles, and Poles were very wary of us. The media told us nothing of what was going on. And remember, this is pre-computer, pre-internet, pre-satellite TV, pre-mobile phone. It was a completely different world. It's very hard to imagine today. One of my responsibilities was to edit the Polish news bulletin, which was a press bulletin we produced for the Western community. And on the 13th of December 1970, I went into the office and read the papers and I marked for translation a long item announcing price rises in all basic commodities. Uh, I went home. It was a Sunday. The next day, we learned from the BBC that riots had broken out in Gdansk in protest at these price rises. And this was the beginning of the process that we're talking about tonight, the long road to the round table and the democratisation of Poland. It was the event that brought Wawensa into opposition politics. He was part of the strike in the Lenin shipyard, though we didn't, of course, know that. It was also the first time that I registered the importance of Wojciech Jaruzelski, because he was the Polish Minister of Defence at the time. And so the main players had entered the stage. I saw Poland through the drama that followed the fall of Wladyslaw Gomulka, the appointment of uh, Edward Gierek as first secretary of the Polish-United Workers' Party, the further strikes and protests that followed in Szczecin and Łódź and elsewhere, and the concessions that were made by the authorities and the attempts at conciliation, typified by gestures such as the purchase of a license to build a small uh, Fiat car, the famous Maui. Or the uh, purchase of a license to make Coca Cola in Poland in 1972. I remember reporting that hardline party members were finding this decision hard to swallow. (laughs) Um, Well, of course, these efforts of conciliation were not really successful, and we kept telling London that the pressure for reform would not go away, the pressure for change. And we knew what people were demanding. I had been in Szczecin in January uh, 1971 when the shipyard was on strike and I was very pleased with myself because I managed to get hold of a copy of the strikers' demands, which included free trades unions. Sadly, I missed the dramas of the late 1970s, the creation of solidarity and indeed the imposition of martial law. But I returned to Poland in 1985 to a rather different country, actually rather more open and more relaxed, but just as poor, and just as repressed I could make Polish friends then and some of them called Poland a third world country the Szczecich Fiat Mm. and underneath it was true Poland was marginalised, stagnating a place where people had given up on the system and the system had almost given up on itself the old joke they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work was very true and an underground society had grown up vital and active, and engaging the most talented people in the country. People were so disaffected that they'd started to do things for themselves, a real challenge to the Communist Party's monopoly of social initiative. And it was in 1985 that we in the British Embassy renewed contact with Vowenza. We'd had no contact with him since martial law. Uh, My ambassador and I went to see him in October that year. I remember it very well. I was driving... And I got lost in the evening looking for the house of Father Yankovsky, where we were to meet Luenza. And at one point I stopped and in my confusion a driver behind me pulled up alongside and he said, follow us. It was the security police. They of course (laughs) knew exactly what was going on, what we were up to. (laughs) And they made our life a bit easier, I must say. (laughs) Luenza was waiting outside because we were late and he looked anxious. He was starved of Western contact and he needed this meeting. And after that we saw him and his colleagues, the whole Solidarity leadership, regularly. And it was a magic time and we felt, perhaps improperly, that we were watching a struggle of good against evil. And we had some amazing times. I remember a dinner with the Solidarity Committee in Tarnów, in central Poland. Wonderful people and very brave. Poland, Solidarity, after all, was an illegal organisation in a brutal dictatorship. Looking back, I can see how much Vorwensa mattered, his determination and the loyalty and commitment of his advisers. He was much more than a figurehead. His face was the badge of the organisation, instantly recognisable. He was ideally suited to his opposition underground role and his toughness, courage and determination were, were vital. Jaruzelski, first secretary of the Polish United Workers' Party by then and president of Poland too, who died 10 days ago. Seemed at the time unmovable, but there was, of course, movement, and we've been listening to some of that this evening. Gorbachev in Moscow had begun a process of internal reform. We didn't understand how this was going to affect the satellite countries. But Yarazelsky clearly had some canny advisers, and I was very impressed by General Kishchak, the interior minister, who were looking for a way forward out of the political and economic morass. We could see that happening... And we knew from our contacts with the lay Catholic intellectuals who were very prominent in society that they were feelers out from the regime. And we could see the government's desperate search for a solution to its huge debt problem. Our own contacts in the party pointed us in the right direction, that change was afoot, but we didn't know what sort of change. There was some evidence that the party was preparing soft landings. I think it was at this time that the law was changed to allow the creation of joint stock companies, something that had already happened in Hungary. there were many doubters around. I attended a meeting of Western European heads of mission in Warsaw in mid-1988, where the main topic on the agenda was, is solidarity finished? Very hard to imagine. But we struggled for credibility in London too, when we talked about change in Poland. And I think Mrs Thatcher, who came to Poland in November 1988, uh, an event we celebrated at the Polish embassy last year, uh, understood it as well as anyone it was a very important visit. First of all, it emphasised the importance of solidarity and the high regard it was held in by the West. It made it harder for the regime to exclude it from the round table, which was then on the agenda. And it calmed Vowenza's fears that the round table was just a trap, a trick, one he should stay clear, steer clear of. And Mrs Thatcher told him to take this opportunity. It also incidentally showed us how dominant Vowenza was in his group, of Mrs Thatcher's lunch with the Solidarity Leadership in Gdansk, which we arranged. Everyone was there, all the great names, Goremik, Mazowiecki, Miknik, Kuron, Lis, Kurotowska, and many others. But I think that apart from Vawensa, only Gorimik spoke. And afterwards I asked Miknik, why? Why didn't you speak? He's one of the most voluble people you could meet. He said, Lech told us not to.
0: <laughs> and they didn't. Okay.
1: Of course, what we didn't understand was, what, was that Gorbachev had probably already repudiated the Brezhnev Doctrine, effectively pulling the rug from under the feet of the East European communists. If Jaruzelski knew that, it would have been a spur to find an acceptable way forward. Well, there was so much now that seems clear, but of which we had no real understanding. Indeed, it was very hard to see what was really happening, and it seemed unthinkable to predict the end of communism in Poland. I think almost no one, except perhaps, again, Miknik, really understood it all. I remember him telling me in 1988 that he was giving lectures to students at Warsaw University, informal lectures after hours, of course, because he was a non-person. And what was he telling the students? Read Isvestia and Pravda. Uh They laughed at him, but he was right. So after it was all over, I found myself back in London as head of Central European Department in the Foreign Office, This is in 1992, and I'd just taken up my role, and I had the immense pleasure of greeting Janusz Unitschkiewicz, Solidarity spokesman who'd been in and out of prison in the 80s when I'd known him, when he came to London as Polish Minister of Defence. Fantastic. And then we were embarked on the task of getting Poland into NATO and into the EU. And for me, perhaps the, the crowning symbol... The confirmation that Poland was once again a free and sovereign state came in September 1993, when we organised the repatriation to Poland of the remains of General uh, Sikorski, Poland's wartime leader, leader of the government in exile, who had been killed in an air crash in Gibraltar in 1943. His remains were exhumed from the Polish cemetery in Newark, in Nottinghamshire, and taken to RAF Koningsby with full honours. And on a stormy, wet day, the Polish Air Force plane took off, carrying Sikorsky back to Poland. And out of the clouds appeared two RAF tornado fighters, and they flew wingtip to wingtip beside the Polish Air Force jet, escorting Sikorsky home. It was a wonderful moment. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here back at LSE. Um, and a a pleasure to be on this panel, several of whose members have already said things that I was planning to say, and therefore, (laughs) while they were speaking, I've rewritten my entire presentation. Um, The ambassador's um, point just there reminded me, and his general description of Poland in the 80s is one that's very familiar to me. I was actually there for the first time in 1987, and this tells you how much the world has changed. So what I was doing there in 1987 was Taking So Timothy Garton Ash at that time ran a little foundation that sent money to dissidents in Eastern Europe. And he got sort of gullible students to take money. You know, they would stick it in their shoe or whatever and walk over the border and bring $1,000. And I was one of those students. That was my that was my first trip there. But I was also there in 1988 when Mrs. Thatcher was there. And recently, not that long ago, Charles Pohl, who worked for her and I think was also at the same um, meeting with, with Father Jankowski in Valenza, Charles Pohl's description of that. Meeting, which was, ex- was extremely funny, had Mrs. Thatcher, they, they were having this loc- very raucous conversation, and Mrs. Thatcher constantly pointing at the light fixtures because she assumed there were bugs in the room. And she said, You know, look at, sh- you know, it's, people are listening, and w- we don't care, you know. And, and so it shows you, in a way, how much the conversation in Poland was even ahead of what the West thought it was. Um, what I, the Poland that I remember in the 1980s. Um, 87, 88, um, let alone 89, was one in which people were already mentally free, if that's the right word. So they were all, you know, while I take um, Professor Zubuk's point about, you know, the importance of the role of Russia, there is something that had already happened in Poland, they and they were already thinking of themselves as independent in a way that is also part of the mix. Um, I thought what I would do in my allotted 10 minutes is refocus on June 1989 and remind everybody exactly what happened, because in fact, that affected much of what later happened later on, and it's often forgotten. Um, and what happened in, in June 1989 was the result of a deal. Um, so, actually, there wasn't a street revolution in Poland. You know, this wasn't. Prague, and it wasn't Romania, and it wasn't even Poland in 1981, um, there was a negotiated transition. So it belongs in the category of what happened in South Africa or maybe what's happening in Burma now. So in fact, it doesn't fit the pattern of revolution in the way that we we now think so. Um, there was a deal, there was the, the famous, I mean, I think on the photograph that you've used to advertise this event, there was this famous round table built. Um, and this round table was actually an extremely controversial mechanism for transition. It was at the time, and it remained so afterwards. Um, what with The idea of the roundtable was that the, 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 the communists and their opponents in the Democratic opposition would all sit around this one table, and they would come to an agreement about how to run the country. And then there were kind of sub-roundtables that would discuss other things like economics and so on. And this was actually, the mechanism of transition was actually a negotiated transition. It was a deal. And the first elections were meant to be controlled elections. So they weren't going to be really free elections. They were going to be, I think, um, I'm trying to remember, but it was, I think it was 60%, something like that, of the seats in the new parliament, somebody else will remember, 65, were controlled, were meant to be, were going to be controlled by the Communist Party, and only part of the parliamentary seats were, were and actually... And yeah, yeah, and, and their affiliates, right? But only a part of the seats were actually open to be contested freely, um, and then a new body was created, which was the Senate, and that was entirely meant to be contested freely. Um, and I will reiterate what what um, what a few people said is that when this procedure was set up, first of all, this was the first change of that kind that had happened in the region. You know, I accepted there had been a lot of things going on in Moscow, um, and the 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 caution and the concern not to rock the boat. Um, that that, that enveloped everybody. It was a a very important factor in determining what happened. In other words, um, the Solidarity people didn't want to push things too far or too fast. Um, They didn't want to provoke some kind of reaction from Moscow. This was actually an incredibly cautious and very carefully planned change. Um, The other other point about the election was that the the Democratic opposition, which we loosely called Solidarity, but it came to include other groups, um, formed into a kind of so-called citizens committees that would fight the election. Didn't know what the outcome of the election to be, and they genuinely didn't know what it would be, and they didn't necessarily think they would win. So there was a kind of mythology or understanding at the time, you know, that actually the communists have a lot of support, they have a certain amount of legitimacy, and if I remember, you'll remember this as well. The communists on their side of the, uh, you know, their candidates included kind of famous soccer players and movie stars and sort of popular figures who who were supposed to engender, you know, good feelings and Popular support, and it was not at all written in, in advance that this was going to be some kind of, some kind of victory. Um. And I remember, I'm sure you remember, I'm sure anybody else in the room, how the extraordinary, uh, you know, as the, as the evening of June 4th unfolded and then as the story began the next day, this, this thing of people sitting in front of the television, sitting in front of, you know, ticker tape, whatever it was, watching open-mouthed at the election returns because all of the contested seats in the parliament went to the opposition, and it was 99 out of 100 Senate seats um, went to the opposition. And this was a kind of... Immediately, it created a new atmosphere and a new situation, because although technically the communists were still in charge, they still controlled 60 percent of the parliament, 65 percent. In fact, in practice, solidarity had won and the communists had lost their legitimacy, whatever claim to legitimacy they'd had. And the interesting, you know, the very interesting thing in retrospect, I'm not sure that I was clever enough to see this at the time, in retrospect was that they understood that and they understood that that meant they could no longer rule. And this is a really extraordinary change because in in a different regime or if it was a different group of people or in a different... You know, geopolitical climate. They might have said, "Well, who cares? You know, election results are election results. We can always falsify them or undermine them." And actually, at this point in history, they themselves were so demoralized. You know, one forgets how completely demoralized the Communist Party was. That they said, "It's true, we've lost legitimacy. We, we can't rule anymore." And then they sort of passed the ball to Solidarity. And Solidarity's first reaction, I am sorry to say, was, "Oh my God, we can't rule either. We have no idea what to do." That was, you know, I mean, Yana you know. Said something like that to me on that day, which I'm sure I wrote and reported. I mean, I don't remember. The, I don't remember it word for word, and that was sort of almost the first reaction. That was the kind of the first instant. Reaction. You know, but two days later, of course, they there began a much longer negotiation and a more complicated process of what an independent government would look like. And there began to be, um, um, and there began to be changes. Um, I won't go into exactly what happened, but you know, in essence, Tadeusz Mazowiecki became the first non-communist prime minister of Poland a couple of months later. Um, and the deal was that he became prime minister, and Jaruzelski became the first president. Jaruzelski um, became president, and one or two key people, including General Kishchak, the interior minister, stayed in power during this transition period. Um, and this was another, this is a, another piece of the story that we now forget, that it was not an instant transition to the opposition. There was this hangover period during which, among other things, Kishchak went through the archives and burned every single document that mentioned his name. Um, as I know, because I then went to look for them. But, <laughs> <laughs> One or two survived mysteriously, but it's very. It was not easy to find them. Um, so you know, he destroyed his own documents and probably those of many others. So as 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 we also know, um, and you know, and one of the things one of the things that makes the made the politics of the 1990s um, then so hard for outsiders to understand was that this kind of transition had big advantages and some big disadvantages, and they were within you know months and years they were very very clear, and the big advantage was that because it was <clears throat> because it was an agreed and negotiated transition, there was no immediate counter-revolution. You know, the communists had agreed to give up power in exchange for a few things. In exchange, initially for for the archives staying closed. In exchange for um, a sort of immunity and impunity, and, and they were they were sort of allowed to go. And and this had this had you know on the this had it meant there was no violence. There was no opposition to the change. At least no um, no. no No public opposition. Um, It also meant that the outgoing powers had a kind of stake in the new system. And this is something I didn't appreciate at all at the time. um, But they immediately saw that, that, you know, there was a way back to power for them and it was through democracy. And they immediately began reorganizing themselves into another kind of political sort of fake social democratic party which you know that's another long piece of history they reorganized themselves they recreated the communist party they gave it a new name um, and it and a few years later it actually returned it was elected back to power um, then eventually it was discredited as being totally corrupt which might have been predictable but anyway it. it but, but the point is that but that the, the guys going out had a stake in the system they saw a way back through the use of democracy and they didn't try to overthrow it again as did happen in some other places. And so this was, this was the big advantage of the system, although it didn't necessarily look like an advantage. Of time. There was, a, there were a couple of big disadvantages that were also immediate. One of them obviously is the failure to, um, the failure to, uh, uh, you know, deal with the crimes of the past. Um, the, fa- you know, the fact that, you know, the, the former oppressors we're now back at the, you know, we're almost immediately back at the center of power. This left people with a feeling of unfairness, that the transition had been unfair. And as you know, the, and as I, the, the difficulty with explaining the politics of the 90s is that Poland almost immediately divided into people who felt, who were in favor of the transition and those who felt it was unfair. And the narrative that the transition was unfair, that it was, it favored the former communists, that it left out many good people, that there was a, that there was something illegitimate about it continues to this day. Um, and one of the reasons why I can never explain Polish politi- politics to anybody else is that too very often that's the division between main political parties. It's not right left. It's not should there be a bigger state or a bigger welfare state. It's very often um, along. It's very often an argument about the past, and very often it's an argument about about 1990. Um, uh, you know, so you know to, to to sum up, you know the the legacy of 1998 is. You know, I so I was there yesterday at this really spectacular ceremony. It was amazing that leaders from all over Europe came to Warsaw. You know, Obama was there, Kerry was there, but also today, Hollande was there, Gauk was there, foreign ministers from all over Central Europe. They all came to Warsaw. People do recognize um, the, extraordinary, um, you know, the extraordinary achievements of Poland in the last 25 years. And the fact that this day, this June the 4th day, which, is, which was the election that changed everything, has become the central date that Poles celebrate Um, and remember is very important. Um, But I wouldn't, um, you know, I think it's important to remember exactly how it happened and what happened if you want to understand um, what happened next as well. So thank you.
0: Thank you very much to all of our speakers, um, both for saying lots of fascinating things, but also for keeping uh, sufficiently to time that we have plenty of time for discussion. Now, oh, do, we have, do we now have two roving mics? OK, I was going to say that I was going to have to sort of do the... This would be a bit like a tennis match and go left, right, left, right. That's not a political statement uh, in terms of the questions. But actually, we now have a second roving mic, so we don't need to do that. Uh, so um, I suspect there will be plenty of questions. So rather than asking the first one myself, I'll hand straight over to the room. Uh, yes, this gentleman in the front here, front row? Yes, second row. Thank you. It was very interesting when you said about the overthrow of democracy. But what worries me at the moment is the negotiation going on between the United States and the European Union about the transatlantic trade and investment partnership and the ramifications this will have on parliamentary democracy, given that corporations will be in a position to sue governments if they consider their profits are being cut because of social policies maybe protecting um, people's health and things like that which has happened in the United States what do you think the Polish government, well in fact European governments should do to protect the sovereignty of a democratically elected parliamentary system thank you. Okay can we, uh, can we take a number of questions I think I'll take sort of four, three or four at least before and if they are questions to a specific member of the panel can you say so please yes yeah, so over the front of the front row please Uh, thank you. Uh, my, my question is, is there any way that the events of 1989 could have occurred in 1981? No. Okay. Admirably succinct. Let's hope that's a model for many questions hereafter. Uh, <laughs> yes, in the... Uh, th- uh, no s- oh. <coughs> um, slightly further forward, the gentleman in the blue blazer.
1: Nobody's mentioned John Paul II. How would the panel
0: evaluate his role? OK, another nicely brief question, whether it will be a brief answer is another matter entirely. Uh, yes, here, here at the, the front. How will history uh, remember the general... Can, can you wait for the microphone, because I think this is being recorded, so... How will, how will history... What will history say about uh, general... Jaroszelski. <laughs> okay. Um, well, that that's probably enough to be getting on with. So we have the Pope. We have General Jaroszelski. We have 1981, and we have uh, Atlantic free trade. So, uh, who wants to
4: step into the breach? Why, why don't we each take one or two? Okay. I think we all. Well, who who wants Who wants the Pope? Okay. I'm happy to take the Pope and General Jarzelski. They sort of go together like bookends. You you,
0: you take General (laughs) Jarzelski as we've got four questions. Okay.
1: Well, the Pope was incredibly important. Um, His election gave Poles a hope uh, and a recognition and a supporter of enormous influence. And the fact that he visited Poland um, regularly Um, where he attracted enormous crowds. I don't know if any of you were in in Poland in in the time of one of his visits and and went to one of his open-air masses with a million people. Uh, It was an extraordinary event, Um, and he was very, very important, and he was another big player on the political stage whom Jaruzelski could not ignore, could not dismiss, Um, and he was a beacon, and, and people, of course, went to Rome to consult him and see him whenever they could. So I think he was enormously important.
4: Yeah, I think the function of the Pope in the 70s has been described to me by several people, including my husband. Um, What happened was, is when the Pope went to Poland for the first time in 1979 and said, Mass., and a million people came in Krakow, or and a million people came and you know, a million and a half I think, in, in one of the other places. What it did was, is it broke a certain, you know, people have often said to me, you know, in the, in the communist system, even in the 70s, people felt very isolated. Okay, I'm an anti-communist and my cousins are anti-communist and my friends at school are, but actually out there in the whole society, most people probably support the system. You know, people felt very isolated in their opposition. And when there were, when they saw a million people in a field, and they, and then they turned on the television that night, and it showed a couple of little old ladies with sticks. You know, um, they understood a that. There was it was actually a huge opposition and B, that television lies. And that was a um, those were, they were very transformative in giving people the courage to uh, create solidarity you know, a year later. Um, General Jaruzelski is a fantastically interesting figure. Um, you probably know about him from, I mean the more, the more that's, that comes out about him in archives actually, the more interesting he gets. Um, one of the, you know, and, and one of the difficulties with analyzing him is that He himself wanted to create a mythology around himself and his actions later in his life. And he and and, and others around him did the same. And so it's been very hard to pick out the truth Um, you know, he, he was um, absolutely a creature of the system. I mean, I think this idea, you know, he came from uh, what, whatever it was that motivated him or whatever brought him into it. You know, there's a, there's a whole alternate mythology. He came from a Polish noble family and he was trying to do the best for the country and so on. I think if you look at what actually happened in 1981, if you look at the decision to carry out martial law, um, as far as I recall from, the, you know, the, the, the documents, you know, something like what actually happened was that he called up Moscow. He said, could you please help everything? Getting out of control, and Moscow said, "Sorry, we're really busy in Afghanistan. It's your problem. Can you please deal with it?" And so, it's absolutely mythology that he carried out martial law in order to avoid a, a push off a Soviet invasion. In fact, he carried out martial law to save his job and to save his career and to save his the, the party. I mean, there was no Soviet pressure to carry out martial law. So, I think we can dismiss that that myth about him. He he didn't have to do it. He could have resigned. There were all kinds of things he could have done to um, to avoid it. Um, the, you know, the, the more interesting, I think, argument and the more interesting discussion about him, which is one he'd ever particularly wanted to have, which is his role in 1989, um, to what degree did he decide to carry out the run roundtable? table, to what degree was he the patron of it, and to what degree was he just filling out doing what Moscow told him to do? Actually, your comments made me think the, the latter. Um, you, know, you know, one could award him a kind of F W clerk status as somebody who presu- you wisely presided over the transition. But, uh, you know, I think documents are showing that he doesn't actually even get that credit either. But you, you may know more. If you've been working on recently, There's,
3: very quickly because it's it linked to another question. <clears throat> the, our assessment of Jaruzelski should be linked to the uh, to the context of 1981. And there was a question: well, yes. was it possible? W- 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 what What do you mean? I, I suppose the complete fall of communism in 1981. I, I I excluded completely. Well, nothing completely can be excluded, but 99.9% uh, would be that. Uh, uh, there would have been a violent war in Eastern Europe uh, in some way or another. Why I'm saying that, because uh, we know on one, ha- on one hand that the Soviets were extremely reluctant to uh, get involved into Polish affairs militarily, let's put it this way, because they were in Afghanistan, above all, because of possibility of Western sanctions, because they knew they would have to feed the Poles, and, but most importantly, because they were afraid the Poles would fight back. So the idea that the oppressed nations would rise and the idea of, of kind of falling domino um, uh, was certainly a horrifying idea, at least for Andropov, who was at the time one of the most important person. So uh, that was a different context, different situation. However, that makes us reconsider this episode that Anna Applebaum mentioned about, a very important episode when Jaruzelski uh, imposed the martial law and the role you know, of Jaruzelski in all this story. And I was at the conference in Yachranka uh, where we discussed it in his presence and the presence of many other illustrious individuals. Uh, my reading today, uh, which I didn't think at the time, my reading today is that for him it was... It uh, was a surprise that the Soviets refused to back him up. There was enormous pressure. Here I disagree with, uh, with uh, apple Applebaum. There was enormous pressure on Yarozelski and then on Kanya, his predecessor, from the Soviets to introduce the martial law. And there was this fear. I can easily imagine the general had that nightmare of Poles killing Poles plus the Soviets because there are troops there in Poland, getting involved accidentally just to defend their bases or just helping the, the one side in the civil war in Poland. And that would have been a total nightmare. So I even can suggest that when the Soviets refused to back him up, that was a shock for him, but that focused his mind. And we know how the martial law was efficiently organized. Nothing... Focuses your mind, uh, as, as, as such as you know um, uh, this situation when you choose between one bad thing, the martial law, and the worst thing, a possibility of a civil war with the involvement of uh, foreign power.
0: I think that leads you with free trade. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Won't answer your question. It's an important question, but it has nothing to do with the subject today, and uh, I can't deal with that. The, uh, the, 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 the questions which we've been discussing are at the very center of the debates in Poland, and it's about Jaruzelski, and it's about the negotiated agreement, etc. However, I think that this is a bit of a culture. Uh, of, of the place called Poland to, uh, to, to refer more to the history of the past rather than to discuss the choices for the future like TTIP for example and I think that this question is a question important for the historians it's a question important for some uh, internal discussion among friends and uh, who were for one option and friends who were for another option but it has nothing to do anymore with the choices which we are facing at the moment and this is one of the problems because we very often go back to the history and we are looking for some kind of a solution and suggestion for the future and we won't find them. That was a very specific period. 1991 was at the very, very center of the Brezhnev era. It was a very uh, you know, repressive, regressive and very brutal uh, period. And I also have no doubt whatsoever based also on the conversation. And also I participated in the conference in Yahranka and my wife published a book on the Yahranka documents uh, of the conference, which was incredibly important because we had Marshal Kulikov and we had other people, leaders of Solidarity, and other people who have been discussing. Also uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski was there, Jan Novak-Ziorański, and the head of, very important person, head of US military intelligence. And those guys didn't have any illusions whatsoever about the Soviet intentions. So so I'm sure Anna is entitled to to frame, to to see Jaruzelski, but he didn't have any doubts. The important in politics is the culture, the context. And the context was Hungary, Budapest, 56, Czechoslovakia, 68, and Poland could be next. So uh, whether the Soviets would actually make a decision to enter, it's very important for us today but it was of a secondary important at that very time I have no doubt that Jaruzelski and his acolytes didn't have any, 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 any illusions about the Soviet intentions the, uh, the, the things which I want to say at the end because you encourage me to be a bit controversial is, uh, is uh, concerns two things first of all solidarity was a self, it called itself a self controlled revolution because this context of Poland being between Germany and the Soviet Union, the borders, don't, don't, we, don't, we shouldn't forget. The Western borders were not formally recognized by the West Germany at that time yet. It was a bit of a problem. And it was followed by the imposition of martial law. Jaruzelski was a hateful figure, but it was to some extent a self-controlled country revolution. This is not what happened in Czechoslovakia when not only people could not work, but their children couldn't study and it allowed for the development of the alternative society. We might not like that, but as a political scientist and an analyst, you look at the situation. Actually, people got arrested, and they were freed after a few months. There was another amnesty, you know, etc., etc. And the uh, and the, another uh, statement: which is, imposition of martial law, and it was rightly said on many occasions, broke the backbone of solidarity and broke the backbone of the Polish society. 10 million people joined the movement. One-third of the nation. I think TUC would be have, happy to have 30 million of members. <laughs> um, and when it happened, we didn't have a massive protest. We did have protests. People had died in Vujek, etc. But it wasn't on a massive scale. There wasn't a, a general strike. People had to adapt. So the question which I put is, would... The transformation, economic transformation, the big bang would be possible with a powerful solidarity trade union in 1989 and 1990, hmm. and I think it
0: would. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, well, it's good to have some lively disagreement on the panel, That's but uh, let's have another round of questions, yes,
5: right at the back, at the back there. Uh, I, member of the public, uh, two questions uh, to Mr. Vladislav Zubok, because uh, you mentioned you're a Soviet man, were well, you were a Soviet man? Uh, Kenneth Kuklinski, just a few words uh, your, of your mind. And uh, Professor Applebaum, uh, your lecture you mentioned about something called uh, Gruba Kreska, a thick line uh, which divided communism from uh, freedom. Uh, fortunately, people who are responsible for those times, for those 45 years of uh, misery, uh, murderers were—they were, are still not, um, they're still not responsible for this, like such as people <coughs> such as uh, Mr. Roz- Rozelski, Mr. K- who last week got a uh, state funeral uh, Mr. Kiszczak, other secret services members, Mr. Michnik who we just found out that he collaborated with the system and many more uh, my, <coughs> and as a, as a consequence, 25 years later uh, 2004 Uh, between 2 and 3 million young Poles have left the country because uh, public finances courts, judicial systems, pension system education, healthcare the economy in general was in tatters Uh, we left the country because we we couldn't find ourselves over there can can we keep the questions brief? my question is is, uh, are you not ashamed of your uh, husband Mr. Radoslaw Sikorski The so called uh, king of Twitter, who uh, first of all, he still employs over 120 okay. I think, I think former, former members of the system. And what Thank he you. did in the Ukraine two months, three months ago, he said, <laughs> well, three people in
0: Ukraine will die. <laughs> okay, can we have, a, can we have a, uh, another question, please? Uh, here at the front. Thank you very much. For, this very interesting, um, for the very interesting insights
5: that you shared. I'm asking one question, not only because I'm writing an exam on, on this, <laughs> tomorrow,
4: <laughs> but also because it's I'm- Office hours are after.
2: It's very related to the topic, you will see. Uh, two questions. Well, like exam
5: I would like to address them to Mrs. Applebaum and uh, Professor Zubok, and I would like to formulate them as counterfactual questions. How different would events have been if Tiananmen, also what, 25 years ago to the day, had been resolved in a peaceful manner in
0: 1989,
5: and um, how different would events have been
0: if the Berlin Wall had not come down on the 9th of November in 1989? Oh, oh. Okay, some, some big <laughs> counterfactuals there. Right at the very back, there in the middle. I don't know whether the mic can get to you. No, the mic can get to you. It's, this is, there's a podcast of this event, so people need to speak into the mic, otherwise they won't be heard. Yeah. So I have a question
2: for Professor Zubok. Um, how strong do you think the opposition to Gorbachev was in 1989? And was the threat of a conservative backlash a factor in
0: the Polish events of the time? Um, Thank you. Again, admirably. succinct. And the last
2: question here. Again to Professor Zubek about the current situation in Russia. How long will it take to bring Russia oh into boy. the fold? boy. Well, we want to I stay here. Let's, let's stay on Poland and
0: history, please. <laughs> can, can, if it's a historical question <laughs> over here.
5: Okay, I don't, I, I don't
1: know, but kind of. Um, so I just wanted to ask. Um, there was this really critical article in Foreign Policy.
4: I, I'm so sorry again about my mistake. Oh, please don't do this. this. No, I, I mean, I, I disagreed. But um, no. I just one of the things that it said was that it's unfair to make
1: the make the comparison between the the, the, the situations in solidarity and um, the situation in Ukraine now because Russia is now more confident and the West less so yeah, and so I, I just want to ask I guess to all members of the panel to what extent is, um, is the comparison useful do you think and what can we learn from it
0: ok Okay. Um, that's, that's four questions so let's hand it back over to the panel so who wants to go first I'm I'm first left. Left. Okay. Well,
3: Tiananmen, okay. very briefly, I found no evidence whatsoever that the Soviets uh, wanted to, uh, to to use force in Eastern Europe. So Tiananmen affected Gorbachev, Shevardnadze, and the rest of them. Uh, in only one way, they were appalled by the violence in China, but they also were appalled by before Tiananmen by the use of Soviet forces in Belisi Georgia, in early April 1989. That was, again, in a, a domestic crisis that affected them much more deeply, in a more profound way than Tiananmen did. In one way, I can speculate that Tiananmen sort of disciplined um, the, those in, in, in solidarity in, in, in other opposition circles in Eastern Europe that wanted to march a little bit too fast, a little bit too faster, but that 's my speculation. They suddenly had that specter of a horror on the horizon and killed people, um, so that made in a way transition uh, more smooth um, on Berlin Wall. Uh, I think uh, Berlin Wall uh, in the literature figures as a major um, uh, milestone, of course, for, that allowed Call uh, and Mitterrand with some opposition uh, from others to create a Europe we know. And the, the fall of the wall that w- was too soon for Gorbachev, because he needed time for his own projects, prevented Gorbachev Presumably, from uh, uh, to, to 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 integrate uh, the Soviet Union, a reformed, of course, Soviet Union, into a market and and into a new Europe. But there were many other, many 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 other serious obstacles to what Gorbachev wanted to achieve. So maybe even if the, the wall had stayed, the Soviet Union would have collapsed. I cannot exclude that opposition to Gorbachev in 1989 was already enormous. Uh, The military openly complained, particularly after... Uh, uh, April 1989 uh, the military force in Belisi was used and Gorbachev disassociated himself from that he blamed the military for the bloodshed in Belisi but that was clearly the politicians who brought the military into the Belisi and that alienated the military uh, uh, from Gorbachev in a fundamental way including those military who served in East Germany 500,000 people uh, were in Germany and that changed the mood among them towards Gorbachev, fundamentally, they became very, very negative towards Gorbachev. So in Western, uh, in Western intelligence estimates, you can read, and actually it was said to call, from, uh, by call to Bush, and then Bush agreed with that, that we don't expect, a call said around May 1990, we don't expect the military to come to power in the Soviet Union, but it would be a group of civilians backed by the military. So already by that time, they expected some sort of a coup that ultimately uh, came. Okay. Uh,
4: um, I'm often asked the question, what in Poland today and what in Eastern Europe today remains of... In other words, what is the political legacy of communism? How did it change people? And one of the legacies is a kind of... You know, and really, the the most important one, and you can see it in different ways in all these countries, is a kind of strain of paranoia that continues to run through contemporary politics, um, and also a kind of refusal to recognize reality, which um, is sometimes it's almost sometimes very difficult, particularly for outsiders to understand. It's often very difficult for me to understand. Um, and you know, the, the the question about Poland and Ukraine is a very interesting one. You know, the idea that um, you know, Pol- there, is a- there are many Poles who find it difficult to imagine that what Ukrainians actually dream of right now is being like Poland. You know, Because they think Poland is so awful and is such a disaster. How- why would anybody want to be like us? Um, I was in Kiev uh, f- five or six weeks ago, and I met President Poroshenko last night. Um, and it is an extraordinary thing and almost impossible for Poles to take on board. But, yes, the Ukrainians do want to be like Poland in the sense that uh, they want a liberal market economy, they want democracy, and they want integration to the West, at least this Ukrainian government um, and at least this president. Um, whether they can achieve that, I have no idea. There are many factors, including what Russia is going to do. Um, um, but it is also true that there are other countries in the region that increasingly see Poland as a leader, as an example. Um, there are countries around the world that study the Polish transition in order to learn lessons from it. Um, and it often seems, and you can see from some of the tenor of the questions, that Poles themselves find this success impossible to understand and accept. And this is a kind of legacy of communism. You know, here it is. You had 25 years of unbelievable good luck, uh, fast economic growth, um, relatively to everybody else in Eastern Europe and in the last few years relative to everybody else in Western Europe, and yet it's still impossible to take on board, and the idea that the Polish government is actually a free and elective government and is a legitimate government is still hard for many to accept. The government, by definition, is
0: illegitimate. Anybody else want to intervene on any of the questions or should we do...
1: Yes? Can I make one comment on the Berlin Wall? It's very interesting. I was ambassador in, in Budapest for many years, and the Hungarians never talk about the fall of the Berlin Wall. They always talk about the cutting of the wire mm. on the yes, border between Hungary and, and Austria, which happened before the fall of the Berlin Wall and released the East Germans. And they would query, I think, whether the fall of the Berlin Wall was simply symbolic, because so much was happening. The process was so well advanced in so many countries already, it had taken off and it had become unstoppable.
2: I want, I, I want to add something. Okay. Well, because we are referring to the events even to 1980, 1981 and then... Uh, And the very important thing is, which actually Obama have said in his speech, that nothing was inevitable. Mm-hmm. that at every stage there were choices to be made, whether there were the choices made by the opposition, and opposition was very pluralistic, and solidarity was very pluralistic, there was an antagonism. Those of you who remember how the situation became very dark, very unpleasant within solidarity, let's say October, November 1981, the infighting, etc., uh, etc. Et so the, 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 in a way, the imposition of martial law has saved solidarity glory for the, for the, for the future. And also, what had happened with the roundtable agreement, and I agree with the analysis of Arnold Baum, absolutely. There were, there were things which were gained and there were things which were lost. Some people who pay particular attention to symbolism will say, we didn't have a day of glory, we didn't have a day of rejoicing, we didn't have this moment which many people seek. That was the end of communism. Here is the beginning of a democracy. And people seek for it. This is natural. But actually, the, this is exactly the moment which makes Poland in, incredibly an interesting example to other. uh, other authoritarian regimes one of the first questions asked to Zbigniew when he flew to Tunisia when he was invited was how did you deal with the criminal individuals in the former regimes, what did you do with the secret documents of the secret police for example, that's a practical question which Poland, I'm sure there were many mistakes, there were many failings, there were many things which might have been done differently, many words which were said uh, which shouldn't be said Uh, But on the whole, to recognize that we are in a totally different place, uh, uh, when somebody says that this is the best 25 years in Polish history for hundreds of years, this is true, which doesn't mean that the young people could not have work and who look, they lack elsewhere. Do not feel abandoned, etc. That somehow, to the statistic doesn't tell all. But I remember—I'm old enough to remember—the Spaniards in the 60s and the 70s who travel masse to France and to, to Germany, to work, or the Yugoslavs, or the others, uh, the Turks, etc. And they—you know—these um, are the waves of the open borders. It is your choice whether you want to remain. And for example, Germany have offered 8,000 places for the Polish IT technicians, and they've got 20. Why? Because they earn better money in Poland. So you know, it depends on what kind of skills do you have, uh, whether you are active enough. There is a lot of problems, and Poland is still a very poor country per GDP. Remember, whatever the, is very poor. It's third from the bottom. But we are, we can make our own choices and we can make our own mistakes. It's all up to us.
0: Okay, I think we have room for um, two or three more questions as long as people are very disciplined and keep the questions nice and short. Uh, So in the centre at the back there.
5: Uh, I've got a question to Mr Thorpe uh, as a British diplomat. uh, Because what can be seen that 25 years ago in Poland uh, we are just fighting for freedom. We didn't fight for European Union or NATO at that time yet, I think, as far as I can remember. We're just having freedom and uh, getting rid of communism. Now, uh, when you go these days to Moldova or to Ukraine or to Georgia, you see that actually it's European Union that is the main focus of their strive for freedom. Why is this difference now that... We've got in Kiev people who are ready to die for the European Union. At the same time, we've got such a problem with credibility of the European Union within the European Union, especially countries like Britain.
2: Okay,
0: Um, in the centre there. Um, I don't know which mic can get to you. Sorry, you're...
4: Hi. Um, There is uh, quite a bit of criticism in Poland about the, the deal that was made between... Um, solidarity and the, the government. And um, I'm just thinking, you know, if you were in their shoes, then what other choices did you have? I mean, if, if you didn't strike that deal, then what else could you have done?
0: Okay, lots of counterfactuals this evening. Yes. Um, and, and in the second row here, in the, in the front. Unfortunately, I didn't decide. Yeah.
4: Uh, this is for Professor Aplbaum. Uh, do you think uh, the Polish transition
0: model is Portable to other places like Egypt, Syria, etc., which are seeing great distress at this time. Okay, that's a good, that's, that's a potentially huge question. Okay, well, I do not see, why don't we leave it there? So I think that's enough. So um, over to the four panellists. I, I, I,
2: I, I want to say something about this process because the question comes. The roundtable agreement was the result not of the strength of both partners, so to say, but out of the weakness of both them. Solidarity could not win through peaceful means, through strikes and other f- kind of protest. And the communists couldn't rule the way they did because of the economic predicament they found themselves. But both sides have totally mythologized itself. I saw the documents and I, 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 I talked to the people. Solidarity saw that the Communist Party By the way, Polish United Workers' Party, we had a joke, it's not Polish, not United, it's not workers, and it's not a party. (laughs) Uh, So so, so Solidarity, so that Polish United Workers' Party is a well-disciplined organization, ruled and controlled from the top by General Jaruzelski and whoever, etc. And, you know, they will execute efficiently whatever the project is the communists thought about solidarity, that this is a unified, well-disciplined organization ruled by Valenza and his radical cronies, etc., etc., and it was all wrong on both sides. So, do you know, the, the agreement was not a pre-planned event. It came out of the weakness, and it was a process when both sides, including Yarosov and Lev Kaczynski and Adam Michnik and Jacek and Adler, they realized that there is room for maneuver, and the rest is history, you, you can't find this history. So nothing was inevitable and it was out of the weakness. The Berlin Wall, thank you very much because this is a symbol, it was about travel to the West, about joining families, actually visiting the shops. scene. It was the, 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 uh, the moron, Schabowski, member of the Politburo, who asked by the journalists and said, when will the new regulations come on stream? And he said, uh, tomorrow. Right away. right away. So people just moved West and they destroyed the wall.
4: I do not there
2: was a guy who lifted it. Yeah, the guy lifted the diagonal. Okay. And you want to go?
4: Um I think this question about transition models is a really interesting one and sort of it's one it's something I sort of I've I've worked on a little bit in the last couple of years. Um, I think the answer is no, the model is not immediately transplantable, and no models are immediately transplantable. But there are elements of models that are, and there there are reasons why it would be very interesting for Tunisians to come to Poland or to come to Germany and to talk about how they dealt with crimes of the past or how they failed to deal with crimes of the past, because very often the questions presenting... Presenting themselves to new revolutionaries or to people who take over a new government or in particular people who want to carry out radical change are the same. I mean, the answers won't necessarily be different, but there is there is a lot that can be learned if you break up the process Um, and in, in a strange way there are no general lessons but there are often specific lessons like no there's no general lesson from the polish transition but there might be a specific lesson from say the reform of the media law in poland how was that done or Or how were the local councils reorganized um or how was um you know how were particular issues dealt with because they're very often quite similar from country to country much more so than 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 we think um and it's a very interesting question i've and I've, i've spent a lot of time actually in recent years trying to connect people who have experiences in Eastern Europe with people in North Africa and, and, and elsewhere who, who can use them. Um, and some, you know, sometimes it seems to be useful.
3: Just uh, my f- five topics to this uh, question of transition, I found it really, really important what Anne Applebaum said, that the poles were fortunate and wise to uh, at least temporarily reconcile the huge differences and avoid uh, violence and uh, excluding, uh, avoided excluding the communists from the process. But this is what, exactly what happened uh, during the collapse of the Soviet Union in Russia uh, after August 1991. And, uh, you know, it's very risky to speculate and generalize, but what we see during the 90s is the rise of a strange regime, a liberal regime, the Yeltsin regime, that tried to do anything to prevent the communists to come back to power through the, the, the secret ballot. And the elections in 1996 in Russia were incredibly dirty and, and, and probably forged elections um, by the by the liberals. Uh, so uh, what we have as a, in the end is you know that strong presidential one party sort of not even one party. There's no party except for the communist party in Russia. Um, a strange situation of a super presidential, super presidential quasi democracy that only took one change. Or election of Mr. Putin to use uh, in a different way. So uh, I thought, I th- I'm beginning to think seriously that the choices that the Poles made in 1989 were much wiser than the choices the, uh, the Russians made in, after August of 1991.
1: Okay. I'd just like to touch upon two things, actually. Firstly, this issue about the EU and, and NATO. I'm, I'm not going to talk about the credibility of the EU uh, today, but um, it is an interesting question of how they came onto the agenda in, um, in 1990 and the years that, that followed. Western ministers and certainly British ministers were, I think, guilty of um, getting carried away by their, their rhetoric. They were very fond of talking about the creation of liberal free market democracies in Central Europe, the newly liberated countries, and they invited these countries to join the major Western institutions without actually specifying what they meant or what the timetable would be. And they started with the easy ones, like the the Council of Europe and uh, the OECD and institutions like that. But when it became tough, we found that East European leaders in every country we went to, and I I dealt with them all, um, there was a time when I would see every Prime Minister, every Foreign Minister each year, they all wanted to join NATO and the EU. And it wasn't really our idea, and it was rather difficult to deliver because there was a great deal of discomfort about it in in London and in Washington and, 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 and in Brussels. Um, but it was delivered eventually, and, um, well, you know, you can see how successful or unsuccessful you, you think it is. Um, on 1989, I'd just like to make one comment. Um, the process in Poland was the first in the region, leaving Moscow aside, and the deal done that there would be no punishment of people in the regime except perhaps for people who'd been guilty of something that could be properly defined as a crime and that might be arguable was critical to its success it might not have gone through without that and solidarity I know were nervous that um, if they failed um, the process of change elsewhere in the region would also fail and so it was it was a, it was a deal of, of wide significance and one which I think has actually proved that still stood the test of time quite well.
0: Thank you. Okay, well, um, one final announcement. Uh, we don't have time for any more questions, I'm afraid. Um, there is a celebration, I gather, at the Knights Templar Pub in Chancery Lane, which is being organised by the Polish Embassy to mark this over- anniversary. And so we're going to be heading over in that direction, and others can, can join us heading that way. Uh, but before we do so, I think the uh, panellists have definitely earned a good round of applause. So I hope you got-